thing. Jesus Christ is still the king. Welcome to the Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr on Iowa Catholic Radio. Every Wednesday, diving deep in the truth of the Catholic Church and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good, live from the Mercy Live Up Studio. Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. Coming to you live from Mercy Live Up Studios, iowacatholicradio.com, 1150 AM, 88.5 FM, 94.5 FM. And if you have the Iowa Catholic Radio app from Blessman Ministries and the People's Abstract Company, you could be listening at the fair. You could be at the fair. Fourteen corn dogs amongst all your family members listening to this radio show thanks to the iowa catholic radio app bud were you listening to the iowa catholic radio app when you were at the fair yesterday oh yeah i've been procrastinating on the fair for three years now so i jumped in feet first this week and my stomach is on a roller coaster of sorts (laughs) (laughs) well you're probably going to gain weight bud it was really cute yesterday we found like the um what's the what's the elysian fields of food distribution at the fair <laughs> well, uh, just like the the i don't know food court part you mean well, yeah that and um i really indulge like we were doing like cheese curds and fried snickers and things like that and my oldest daughter madeline who's now probably more fiscally conservative than me i think like i i'm usually pretty conservative with my money but i was like give me everything fried and i'm buying all this food and she kind of walks up to me and meekly says like Dad, sometimes it makes me nervous when other people spend a lot of money that they might not have. <laughs> yeah, Elias is getting that age where he's like, hey, Dad, maybe it'd be better if you're not doing blank, blank, blank. And I'm all like, leave me alone. It's an established habit at this point. One thing I love about America is things like the 4th of July and the fair, they just give us irrational excuses to throw off all like fetters of discipline. Like, right. I didn't. I wouldn't normally do five hot dogs, but it's the fair. Come on. Yeah, and it's funny because like a lot of these things, it's decreasing good excuses. Like you're like, it's Christmas. Jesus Christ was born, and then you're like, uh, it's it's a uh, Fourth of July. Yeah, America. That's good, right? The fair. We're like, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> Bye. Boom. Now. Yeah. This last Independence Day, my wife's like, honey, you're gonna blow off one of your appendages. We need you. And I'm like, it's. The 4th of July. Like, Do you believe in America? Some... Yeah. What's wrong? Do you believe in late summer? That's what I tell people about the State Fair. <laughs> Everyone's here. We're all doing it. This seems so right. Why Give do you hate the dog time. days of summer? Why do you hate this time? Here? Uh, well, after all that, maybe they don't want it to know about this, but uh, as always, we're sponsored by Mercy College of Health Sciences, which actually is apropos to what we're talking about. Because yesterday was the Red Ribbon Day, so all, it was Mercy College of Health Sciences Day at the fair, so that's yeah. pretty cool. Um, so hopefully you got to walk by and see that if you guys were at the fair yesterday by the main concourse, uh, by the grandstand. Also, uh, every day of the fair, we're at the Varied Industries Building, so you and I have both got a chance to do that. There are tons of people going through. Yeah, yesterday I was a little worried because it was you, the Red Ribbon Day for Mercy at the fair, and... Um, I saw the storms rolling in from the west, and I got a little nervous, but my family was down at the fair yesterday during the day, and they said there were people everywhere. By the way, helpful tip, sometimes when you go to the fair, write your phone number on your children's arm, oh, especially yeah. if they can't talk yet. Yeah, so that that's actually come in handy. I won't give you the full background. Yeah, but that, it, but. it's helped out. Um, and as always, uh, underwritten by Cartridge World. Yeah, Cartridge World is an industry leader delivering high-performance printing products that help you save time, money, and print great. It's perfect for businesses, home offices, college students, or busy moms trying to find affordable printing supplies. 
For business, customers, pickup, and delivery are available. 801 73rd Street in Windsor Heights, 515-564-7400, online, cartridgeworld.com. You can print out a detailed map about all the fair food, and you can make plans beforehand, which is literally what my wife does. Um, today on the show, we have someone who, um, just by probably like the fact that she's really industrious and she writes a lot of essays probably doesn't spend as much time at the fair as i do that's why she's more productive elizabeth bruning who is actually the editor uh, at the washington post and a contributing writer for america she uh, writes and talks about all things augustine but also talks about um, property and especially understandings of, of the catholic social uh, milieu in that regard throughout the ages she's going to be on after the break it's going to be a fantastic talk so i hope everybody sticks around um, yeah, so other than make it out to the fair, see Mercy College of Health Sciences, just we hope you have a blessed day. We hope you come back in a minute and join us as the Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Mars, stick around. The National Council of Catholic Women invites all diocesan women to a custom-designed leadership training on September 23rd from 8.30 to 3.30 p.m. at St. Augustine's Parish. Strengthen your parish women's group and your personal faith journey by enhancing your skills in leadership, development, and communications. Coffee, rolls, and lunch are included in the $30 program fee. Register by August 26th at Des Moines DCCW.org or by calling Carolyn at 712-527-4206. Iowa Catholic Radio would like to say a special thank you to our business partners that underwrite our programming. Friends, each day God's Word is proclaimed on this station. The message of Jesus Christ and the teachings of the church can be heard and are changing lives. We are very grateful for our business partners and would like to bless them for their support. That is why we've created an online business directory. Organized by topic for easy use, we hope you'll like it. Go to iowacatholicradio.com to check it out. Support for The Uncommon Good is provided by Cartridge World. Cartridge World is an industry leader delivering high-performance printing products that help you save time, money, and print great. Perfect for businesses, home offices, college students, or busy moms trying to find affordable printing supplies including ink, toner, paper, or printers. For business customers, pickup and delivery are available. Products are guaranteed or full replacement. Cartridge World, your low-cost, environmentally friendly printing experts. 801 73rd Street in Windsor Heights, 515-564-7400 and online at cartridgeworld.com. Thank you, Confluence Brewing Company, for underwriting Faith on Trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Mano. Confluence Brewing Company, brewed locally and featuring regular, seasonal, and limited-release beers. Available at local stores, bars, and restaurants. Last year, 150, or 150 students, gained essential employment skills and graduated from computer classes through Catholic Charities Hispanic Community Outreach. With your help, we are making a difference, but the need continues. Learn more at catholiccharitiesdm.org. We're back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Happy to have you join us today. Our guest is Elizabeth Bruning. She is an editor at the Washington Post and a contributing writer for America, and she's being modest because she writes for a lot of different places, and if you just go look at her blog or her Twitter handle, you can see all sorts of others as well. Elizabeth, how are you doing today? Fine. Thank you so much. How are you? Great. And I should really note that we've tried to have you on earlier, and last time you were doing a lot worse, so... The fact that you get to sh join us on the show is actually quite a blessing. I'm glad you're feeling a lot better. Thank you so much. Yes, world better. Um, you are, like I said, you're putting Bud Knight to shame in, in most walks of human life. Uh, the sheer amount of things that you write, wonderful essays coming out every week. 
Bud and I are instead spending our time at the Iowa State Fair eating corn dogs. Um, you have been writing a lot about property, uh, especially early Christian understandings about that. But then also St. Augustine in general. You had a, a, a recent article put out by Harvard Magazine talking about this idea of things of Adam and Eve, original sin. Um, there's so much you can talk about, but what I saw from you that made me think you'd be great to come on the show is you had an interview, uh, a, dis- a panel, excuse me, on the Acton Institute where there were discussions about Christian attitudes um, regarding property. And you did such a great job talking about the historical basis of how especially the early Christians understood property. So I didn't know if you would mind maybe setting the stage a bit um, for the folks on the radio about how Christians might have, especially Catholics, have a, a, a different take on what we think about property before we think about it in terms of the left and right political discourse. Sure. Well, so, you know, the early church was pretty, um, you know, it's hard to place it on today's political spectrum. And I sort of think that's a good thing, uh, because it's accessible that way to lots of people. You know, whether you consider yourself right or left, um, you can look at the wisdom of the early church and see that they had a very different way of thinking about ownership and property than we do. And, you know, the, the first way that they thought about the act of ownership was with a, you know, pretty good deal of skepticism. Um, you can see this in the writings of a lot of the church fathers. You can definitely see it in Augustine, even more in Ambrose. Um, you can see it in Chrysostom, and you can see it in Basil of Caesarea. Um, and, and all of these guys basically felt like ownership wasn't intrinsically evil or anything like that. Um, but having exclusive rights to especially excessive amounts of property could be spiritually dangerous. You become owned by that which you possess. Um, and that this is just the, the same old warning about God and mammon, um, that if you become focused on acquiring wealth and keeping it, growing it, maintaining it, showing it, uh, and doing all the things you need to do to keep building wealth, um, you know, that can take over your spiritual life, your interior life, uh, and make you less receptive um, to the love of God. And, and then the other issue is just property itself. And, you know, the, the Church Fathers pretty generally thought that the earth had been made for all people to hold in common, um, that there wasn't any initial intention to break up uh, the earth into exclusively owned bits of property for different people to have absolute rights over. And so they felt like when individuals built up extreme, excessive amounts of wealth, they were actually usurping the property of poor people who had less. Um, because initially it had meant to be held in common. Um, then there are developments in this, you know, especially throughout the Middle Ages, where people like Aquinas think about why private property is useful. Well, private property does help maintain order. It avoids some tragedy of the commons issues. Um, and it's not inherently bad. It's not contrary to natural law to hold private property. Um, but neither is it necessary for a rightly ordered polity to have you know, exclusive and absolute property rights. So you have to strike a middle ground where the property rights that the civil authorities promulgate aren't so absolute and and so unfettered as to lead to the, you know, mass exclusion of poor people, um, you know, to their detriment. And, and in doing so and keeping property rights a little bit more circumscribed by those spiritual concerns. It not only helps the poor, but it helps the rich, right? I mean, it keeps the rich from falling into those traps of ownership um, that people, you know, especially Ambrose, worried about quite a bit. Um, 
you know, and, and then we move up through the Reformation and the Enlightenment, and we just see a different way of thinking about property emerge. Instead of thinking about it you know, sort of strictly in terms of what was the telos, what is the intention of God for the created world, um, how are people supposed to interface with the creative with the created world? Um, you start seeing property thought of as a kind of intrinsic right that uh, people are endowed with, and the question of the circumscription of those rights becomes less and less relevant, and civil authorities um, don't aren't viewed as the promulgators of property rights. Um, they're just viewed as the kind of administrators of property rights, which are more metaphysical. Um, and then it becomes harder and harder to make the case that property ownership should be circumscribed by anything at all, um, except the owner's private conscience. And so that's kind of the world we live in today. When someone has lots and lots and lots of money or wealth or land or whatever, um, we think, well, maybe they should be doing something better with it. You know, they, they should uh, change their mind or change their heart about the way they use or spend their money. Um, but it's pretty rare to see someone say, that's actually not there. They're keeping things from the poor in the world. Um, and it's, it's even rarer to, say so, to see someone saying, you know, having that much is actively hurting them. Um, so that's kind of, you know, a very, very quick and dirty overview of how we have uh, changed our views of property over time. Thanks for that background, Elizabeth. This is Bud Marr, and I, I recently came across your essay, um, your review of Stephen Greenblatt's The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve. And one thing that I found really intriguing in that piece is how you show how we think about anthropology or the human person is really going to factor prominently in how we think about economics. And, you know, for some of us, I think we we read the story of Adam and Eve and we think of it in maybe very spiritual terms, the impact that it sort of had on our spiritual existence. But you show that the way that especially different philosophers throughout time have read this this um, foundational narrative really plays largely into how they think about politics and how we organize society. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's certainly the case that a lot of political theorists writing in the 1700s, the 1800s, um, would you know sort of base their theories of politics in the stories of Adam and Eve. Um, and that was certainly the case uh, with Thomas Hobbes. It was the case with John Locke case with Robert Filmer, who John Locke was arguing with. Um, and, and you see it all over the place. And, and in some cases, they're posing a counter-story, a kind of state of nature counter-story to the Edenic story. And in other cases, they're just using the Edenic story itself uh, to imbue, you know, whatever whatever civil order um, with uh, that authority. Um, but it, it's important, you know, the way that you think people really are is going to have a pretty big impact on the way you think we ought to try to organize ourselves because it's going to impact what you think is even possible. Um, and that's one of the really, really central things about the Adam and Eve story. This is The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Mars. We're speaking with Elizabeth Bruning. Liz, one of the things that I think we, we have, so Bud and I teach this class together here in uh, Mercy College in Iowa, and we're trying to get people to understand why, like you said, these foundations really change how you're going to approach what your prerogatives and what your responsibilities are. So we've actually given a talk where we talk about why it's important to teach Hobbes to nurses, which is, as you can tell, riveting stuff. People are really, you know, at the edge of their seats waiting to hear this. But at the end of it, we think we do a good job of convincing people that if you think 
the state of nature, how human beings are before anything else, is a war of all against all, that life before anything else is brutal, short, and nasty, that when we think about things like peace or service or healing, those start to be, you know, these sort of like fragile interruptions in an otherwise chaotic world. And that's going to really significantly change anything, even things like healthcare. If you think that peace is primary, that if you think at the beginning of the world is this God of tranquility and order, and that it's sin that interrupts things, of course, this starts to have a very idea about that we, we have convulsions uh, of this disorder and the, the magnitude of it is massive. But what we are about is trying to return to this, to remember who we really are. And I think sometimes... People are willing to do that, like Bud said, in a spiritual way, or people are worried to, are, are willing to court on different parts of their life. But in our world, where so much of the world is economic and who owns what, and just inner everyday exchanges, it starts to be hard to remind oneself of this idea that we believe in a God of original peace. In your travels or talking with people, is there practical ways that you've you've come across to try to remind people that in the everyday Quidotian world that we have allegiance to this peace that's prior to all of this violence and disruption? I do think it's very important to try to try to recover that. Um, there's something about um, the Enlightenment theories that underpin a lot of our political thinking that have to do with social contracts. Um, and, and the kind of thin line between chaos and order, like the Hobbesian view, um, that makes people believe that societies and even families and absolutely civil polities, they're just sort of like agreements that we make for our own good. Um, we agree to enter into these uh, organizations or these groupings basically to protect ourselves from the otherwise really violent universe around us. Um, but that, that is a very instrumentalized way of thinking about family, about society, about um, the nation that we, that we live in. And I, I don't know, I don't think that's always the most useful way to go about it, because it knocks down incentives to give. Um, and it, it encourages people to be very suspicious about monitoring the ratio of what they put in to what they take out. Um, and, and I think that the better way is to, you know, operate like Christ, have a servant's heart. Um, and that's easier to do when you recognize that, you know, these organizations, these groupings are natural to us. They correspond to what we're made to be like. That we're not really made for a war of all against all. We're not made for violence. We're certainly not made for loneliness. You know, we're made to be social creatures who live in groups and who organize ourselves towards order and goodness. Um, and, and I think that Augustine's notion of evil being a sort of lack um, really, really adds to that story because then we can say, well, look, the things that hurt us, the things that keep us out of community, the things that encourage violence and opposition, those are the things that make us less human. And being a human is not about being a rational choosing agent, always protecting her self-interest. Being human is about being social. It's about being giving. It's about living in peace. Um, and and the closer we get to those goals, the more human we become. Elizabeth, earlier you said that you know the the most important theologians of the early church they don't necessarily fit easily into our current political boxes that we've constructed. And it seems to me that when I get into uh, conversations around economics with other committed Catholics, that you know one 
one wall that you can run into is that sometimes we think in very binary terms that the options are on the on the table are sort of like unfettered capitalism or or versions of socialism that you know are anti-christian in some ways um but you know this is this is a thorny question for me because you read the writings of someone like basil of caesarea he's very upfront that if you have an extra coat in your closet it belongs to the poor or bread on your in your cupboard it belongs to those who are without and yet um i think you can kind of you can turn those things into merely like a a private injunction you see what i'm saying where you sometimes hear the argument like shouldn't charity just be sort of like voluntary and not something that the state forces do are there resources in in the patristic writers that help us to think about like uh, i don't know in more communal terms about those matters yeah definitely and and i think that um you know so many of the it's complicated because so much of what we deal with now in terms of thinking about the role of the state or the role of charity versus welfare so many of those concepts are new and so while you see the Church Fathers talking about civil government, they're not talking about nation-states in the way that we currently understand them. And it's certainly the case that when they talk about charity or caritas, they're not talking about charity in the way we currently understand it as almsgiving. So it can be kind of confusing to try to read backwards because concepts have changed so much. Um, but I think it's very, it's very much possible to look at the way that the Church Fathers thought about almsgiving, the way they thought about care for the poor, and then the way they thought about orderly states, and to begin to build a picture of what a good state would look like, um, what a rightly ordered polity would look like. And I do think it's easy to make the case that there would be some, in a, in a rightly ordered polity, uh, care for the poor, uh, that there would be issuing from the state some uh, relief for poverty, um, and then I think it's also possible to make the case that the state should educate its citizens in being charitable and virtuous people, and that it should place incentives on, on being charitable and remove barriers to being charitable, um, all towards the education of its citizens, which is part of its role. So I, I think those resources are there, yeah. And I think that it makes a lot of sense to me, you know, uh, why St. Augustine would appeal to you in the various interests that you have. You've you've talked about this in uh, quite a few articles you've written about St. Augustine, how it appeals to you and, and how it's helped you along your journey uh, to conversion and things like this, that um, Augustine finds himself in a very strange place in history where, as a bishop, uh, he, he has, of course, the spiritual uh, concerns of the people under him very much in mind. But not only does he come from being involved in politics, but he is min in many ways one of the very first sort of first or second generation of bishops that find themselves having to intervene in politics because of what is eventually the, the falling apart of the old Roman order. So I think that it makes a lot of sense to look at someone like St. Augustine. Sometimes people think that because, you know, St. Augustine wrote many things, he changes his mind on certain aspects we weirdly for an ancient figure have a lot of his writing so we can sort of see him ebb and flow in these regards but i think it's precisely saint augustine's life on this sort of uh, intersection of the church and the world in very trying times that allows him to really ask questions that the middle ages really pick up and constantly go back to him as a resource 
Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And he, he lived in very troubled times, and, and he was someone who was pulled in multiple directions. He was certainly a man of letters. He was very intellectual. Uh, he was also involved in the day-to-day live life of lay parishioners in the church. Um, and then, as you point out, he was also involved in, in politics and political debates. In some sense, he didn't have a choice, and in another, he was starting to take a role in what would become the Christian church that had a relationship um, with, with Rome itself. And that put him in a, an interesting position in a lot of regards. It put him in a place where he often had to kind of clarify or develop prior, you know, prior positions. Um, and so, you know, he's someone who requires a lot of reading to get a complete picture of. And like you said, we actually have a lot of his writing, and he wrote a lot. Um, so it's easy to do that, and it's very helpful. And, and in some ways, following the way that he thinks about the Christian religion is as helpful, if not a little bit more helpful, than, than looking at his specific position. Well, and I think uh, this is maybe going too far of a field too early in the uh, in talking with you. You you had a very quick blog post about St. Augustine in a sort of out-of-the-way letter about the Donatist, sort of has an argument against Locke. Now, of course, he's not writing against Locke, but like for very different reasons, Locke has this idea of property that property becomes yours when you admix your labor. So for all of those people out there playing um, political science bingo, listening to the uncommon good, you can now mark off your mixture theory of, of property on your bingo card. But so St. Augustine, in dealing with this sort of side issue of a side issue of a side issue, kind of just writes about something that has a huge implication for the church thousand years later. And I think that's why you see everyone from St. Bonaventure to St. Aquinas in the Middle Ages, but to people now thinking, you go back to someone like Augustine, because even if he has a position we're not going to ultimately agree with, he's going to have resources to get the conversation started. And it's precisely not because he's this sort of ivory tower theologian that had everything figured out, but he was sort of, you know, a a prelate who had his hands dirty to the elbows, trying to figure out how to be like Christ in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's dealing with the Donatists. He's dealing with, um, you know, a really big problem, and that is that, you know, there's a group of Christians who are heretical, um, and he's trying to rein them back into the fold of orthodoxy. The way in which they're heretical is, you know, on some level... um, you can you can understand the psychology behind it. You know there had been a mass persecution of Christians, the last great persecution under Diocletian, and and lots of Christians, even priests, even um, prelates, had had deconverted, had renounced the faith under pressure, and then when the persecution let up, had come back. And the Donatists were saying, no, no, if you renounce the faith under pressure, you you know the sacraments that you perform are invalid. And Augustine is saying, no, that's not the case. Um, if, if the moral failures of a priest mean the sacraments are invalid, they're never going to be valid, because every priest then makes mistakes, has errors. Um, and so it's a pretty big fight he's involved with um, vis-a-vis the Donatists. But like you said, it comes down to this weird side note where he's directing Roman authorities to confiscate their property in order to pressure them. And they write back, this is ours, we built it, we made it ourselves. And he says, you know, that doesn't wash. Just because you have labored with it doesn't mean it's yours. 
Um, and that ends up being a kind of rebuttal to what Locke will say, you know, a thousand years later um, in trying to explain the first acquisition of property. Augustine also has some points that sound a lot like sort of legal realist conceptions of property, where he says that, well, private property itself is, is, is a matter of civil jurisdiction. Um, without civil governments, it, it hardly exists. So that's another interesting facet of Augustine. But yeah, there's always something in Augustine, no matter what you're looking at at what point in time. Well, I think that this has practical implications to even if you're not going to be like a, an Augustine scholar, which, like you said, uh, I think you among uh, all the people sitting like on this show right now would say, you know, what's your problem? What are you doing better watching watching some horrible Netflix show? Go read Augustine. But at any rate, you don't have time to be an Augustine scholar. Fine by me. I understand. The reason this is still relevant to you is that there's a way in which any political argument, and Lord knows we're having political arguments, especially after this weekend, people will act like we have to reinvent every stinking will every time, or that we're the first person to, like, we're the first people to think of a problem, like, oh my goodness, humans have been around thousands of years, no one has thought about how the church relates to these things. But if we're honest about what the past and the tradition gives to us, these are human beings, flesh and blood, trying to live like Christ, that because of their circumstance, have wrestled with much of what we've talked about. And so... Sometimes you hear people on all sides of political debate say, that's good and fine, the church believes this, that, or the other, but we have to live in the now. But folks, the now has been, especially if Augustine's right about original sin, the now has been now for thousands of years, and we really do have resources to talk about these things, and their benefit is that they're not covered in the sort of thorny, uh, uh, surface-level party sort of politics that we give them. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think that part of the good thing about going back to Augustine is you get to skip over a lot of the conventional wisdom and and sort of cultural accretions that keep our political categories so polarized and so difficult to break out of. Um, Augustine writes a long time before the Enlightenment, before liberalism, before the foundations that give us the way we think about politics now. And so looking at his wisdom, it's not mediated through all of those things. So it's harder to categorize, and so it encourages people to kind of think outside the box a little bit uh, in terms of what they normally consider politically viable. And I think that's really useful, especially since one of the big problems in the country and you know, potentially even in the church is the polarization um, that makes it hard to talk across you know, partisan lines. Well, Lord knows that we need to be have uh, have more people thinking outside of the box and thinking out how we we don't think in all these polarized terms. Liz, uh, we're getting ready to hit the thirty minute break. Can you join us after the break? Yes. Wonderful. Okay. Well, this is the Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr speaking with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bruning. We're going to take a minute, uh, a two minute break, and then we'll rejoin you on the Uncommon Good. Support for the Uncommon Good is provided by Cartridge World. Cartridge World is an industry leader delivering high-performance printing products that help you save time, money, and print great. Perfect for businesses, home offices, college students, or busy moms trying to find affordable printing supplies including ink, toner, paper, or printers. For business customers, pickup and delivery are available. Products are guaranteed or full replacement. Cartridge World, your low-cost, environmentally friendly printing experts. 801 73rd Street in Windsor Heights, 515-564-7400 and online at cartridgeworld.com. 
Thank you, Confluence Brewing Company, for underwriting Faith on Trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Mano. Confluence Brewing Company, brewed locally and featuring regular, seasonal, and limited-release beers. Available at local stores, bars, and restaurants. Thank you, Farm Bureau agent Cindy Schulte, for underwriting Catholic Women Now. As an authorized independent agent, Cindy's team can provide health insurance options from Wellmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Iowa. Cindy Schulte at 1315 50th Street in West Des Moines or on the web at cindyschulte.com, 515-226-2111. Cindy and her team know health insurance. Wellmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Iowa is an independent licensee of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. Products available at Farm Bureau Financial Services. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio's broadcast of Downing Catholic Sports and Activities is provided by Kemen, using science to improve the world. Kemen is on the leading edge of molecular science, manufacturing more than 500 specialty ingredients used by the feed and food industries and the health, nutrition, and beauty markets. Kemen's vision is to improve the quality of life by touching half the people of the world every day with their products and services. Kemen, using science to improve the world. Online at Kemen.com. Last year, nearly 1,000 victims of domestic violence and sexual assault received assistance at the Phoenix House Domestic Violence Shelter and Sexual Abuse Program in Council Bluffs. With your help, we are making a difference, but the need continues. Learn more at catholiccharitiesdm.org. Back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Botter and Dr. Bud Maher. We are speaking with Elizabeth Brunig editor at, at the Washington Post and a contributing writer for America and many other places besides. Welcome back to the show, Liz. Thank you so much. Now, I have one personal question before we get back into the heat of things. You're from Texas, and every time I hear a Texan who doesn't have an accent, I just want to know what happened there. Are you from Dallas, which is, you know, no one has accents anymore, or what's going on? I'm an Oklahoman, so I have to ask. Well, I am from Arlington, uh, uh, which okay. is not far outside of Dallas. Um and I don't know why I didn't get an accent. My mom has a really nice Texan accent. So does my dad. So does my brother. And I just somehow didn't wind up with one. I did speech and debate. So I did a lot of practicing, uh, you know, sort of news anchor type talk. There, there you go. I, I, I ended up high school in Kansas and married a Kansan. So that's why I think I, I learned not to say ain't quite as much. But, yeah, okay, thank you for, 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 for explaining that for me. I knew, I knew she had to be a high-quality thinker and writer because you have this natural sort of suspicion of Texans. That's right. So to bring a Texan on the show, Bo, I thought. That's right. Yeah. No, I, th- <laughs> I, think, that, I think it's more of a, yeah, but, yeah, you're right. If you, if you pass the Oklahoma filter as a Texan, you, you, you know your stuff. Um, at the end of the break, before we went to the break, I should say, um, we were bringing up Augustine, and I – you can't bring up Augustine without talking about original sin, um, especially the article that Bud mentioned earlier in Harvard Magazine. That starts to be this bugaboo, right, that uh, the author says is, you know, Augustine ruins everything. That's a cottage industry on Amazon.com. Just put Augustine ruins everything, and there's like 5,000 books. But I actually think beyond explaining a lot, so for instance, if anybody's ever been to the DMV, I think the original sin explains a lot. Um, but if you're talking about when what we're talking about original sin plays a part in what saint augustine thinks about politics and property um any introductory remarks for our for our listeners about how what augustine has in mind about sin and redemption playing into everyday politics well so augustine definitely um is suspicious of sort of absolute forms of power um 
you know, precisely because everyone um, has the debt of original sin um, and everyone is inclined to err. Um, and when he does favor forms of government um, that, you know, have quite a bit of concentrated power, it's for the sake of order and with some caveats. Um, it certainly isn't the case um, that Augustine thinks that, um, you know, magistrates or leaders or kings are immune to sin. In terms of property, um, it, it's sin in Augustine's telling that sort of introduces the necessity of private property into the world. So anytime we're operating on um, the system where we're dividing things up and claiming absolute dominion over them and the right, therefore, to exclude others from them, you know, that's all coming from a place of no longer uh, being as capable as we once were of kind of original generosity um, and original community. And I think that's interesting, right? I mean, it's, it's at least a place where we can say there should be brackets on how we do this. It should be circumscribed by our moral duties. We should think about what was intended not only for us, um, but for the land itself. Um, because to ignore those factors is to ignore the fact that there is a difference between pre-lapsarian and post-lapsarian uh, people, which there is. And for Augustine, that's an important difference for politics. Well, I think that you see this uh, in the Old Testament. This is another facet of um, St. Augustine that I think shows up where they're interconnecting. He has these these big debates with the Manichaeans and, and the different types of groups at his time who want to posit that the New Testament um, is good or that there's a good God in the Old Testament is a bad, fleshy God that's angry and whatnot. Um, and in his defense, of course, he makes the point that the Old Testament, yeah, maybe we need to read it typographically or, or things like this, but to not understand the Old Testament is to misunderstand what Jesus Christ is about. Well, the land in the Old Testament is... Uh, you know, a, a, a theme unto itself. What is the land? Who belongs where? And then you think about something like the Jubilee legislation and the idea that at the end of a certain amount of time, uh, land would return to the original families once the, the people of Israel are established in the land. And if you have an idea that the land is not something that is to be um, infinitely divisible simply because a, a person puts their labor into it, but this idea that it's ordained to a higher purpose, you can start to, to, to get past the fog of how we interpret things in our political categories and look back and understand why the people of Israel would be constituted with this rich understanding of the land. And I just think that shines through in everything that a St. Augustine is saying in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I think that it's really unfortunate, um, you know, that we seem to have lost so much of that original thinking about what the land, what material creation itself is for. Because um, that's not a question that seems to come up so much anymore. It's, it's more, what can we do with it? Can we make it beneficial? Uh, what are the consequences of how we use it? And that's kind of the way that we reason now. Um, but for Augustine, there was a really big teleological question the question of what God intended it for, and that's how we could know if we were using it right or not. Um, and I think that's a very useful question uh, for Christians to return to. Um, Elizabeth, jumping forward about a millennium and a half, you know, in, in recent times, uh, you see popes have found it necessary to address, I think, um, economic and political questions because of the shifting nature of, of our society and some things that have changed. So you have someone like a pope in the 19th century, Leo Thirteenth writing his famous encyclical Rerum Novarum. And I, when I was first exposed to that part of the Catholic tradition, I had heard secondary treatments that talked about, you know, Leo saying, 
well, private ownership is a natural right. And this, to me, sounded like a departure from what you've been talking about with Augustine and things like that. When you dig into the encyclical, I think the, the key here is that even for someone like Leo XIII, he talks about it, about it as a natural right, but grounded in divine law. And to me, that seems to be one of the key points that we've lost that I, I think you kind of hinted at this earlier, but wealth or property now doesn't seem to have like a telos. It's sort of an end in itself. And you see this with, I mean, you, you have like controversial political situations and where the line seems to be crossed is when you see the destruction of property. And that's like, that's sort of like the line too far, but we, we can't really conceive of, of wealth as having like a role in, in our development of virtue, but just as kind of like something that we possess and seize for our own sort of like pleasure or goodwill. Right. Wealth is seen as, you know, it, instead of falling under the penumbra of rights that order a society, it falls under the penumbra of personal subjective rights. Um, and so people feel that, and this is, you know, partly the responsibility of Locke and the way he thought about property acquisition, but your property is sort of a demi-you. Hmm. You know, it's something that has elements of yourself mixed in with it and therefore has elements of your own personal rights and protection and exclusivity from others. Um, and in that case, who is anyone else to tell you how to operate with your property? It's like someone telling you, you know, how to administrate your own bodily functions. It's not fair. Um, it's, you know, it's private property. Um, and the Church has never really looked at it that way, you know, because, as we pointed out, the theory of acquisition and the theory of telos is completely different. Um, and so, you know, Pope in the 20th century talked about the social mortgage on property, um, that it's something that really is here to order society, um, but that makes it very clear that the purpose of property is not just personal enrichment, personal wealth. This is The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. We're speaking with Elizabeth Bruning. One real way that I know people at their heart realize that you just can't do with it whatever you want with your property is unmowed lawns. <laughs> Let me tell you, if you have an unmowed lawn, all of a sudden it's a social concern. And it sounds like I'm being flippant, but I, I've been around too much in different neighborhoods that an unmowed lawn can get people to start thinking about this drives down property costs or this makes mosquitoes or people can say all sorts of innumerable things, but it's nothing like – and I'm bad at mowing lawns, as you can tell. And if, if, if my lawn tells people what my soul is like, my soul is in a lot of trouble, people. <laughs> um, but I think that that's something maybe sounds silly, but it's exactly this sort of deal that people do – ultimately realize that people can't do whatever they want because it does even something like leaving your lawn unmowed attracts ticks rats and mosquitoes and it begins to show that we actually do have a responsibility at least to the people next door another example of this involving lawns and again this might sound silly but trying to make it practical for people you know used to you people ate dandelions they put them in salads they make dandelion tea the okies among us made dandelion wine because you make everything wine when you're in Oklahoma, but you can't do that anymore. I mean, there, there's so much. Uh, they tell you online, they're like, do not, if you have a yard, do not make dandelion whatever, because it inevitably has so much pesticides in it that it will make you sick. You have to, on purpose, go buy dandelion seeds and grow it in a pot. And so then there's another thing. This goes back into what's going on with Iowa now, uh, that... You use water, that stuff gets dumped in the commonplace. So we're having these big debates about water. We can say what we want to 
about private property and us putting ourselves into it. But even if it's a natural right, it inevitably is going to affect other people. Right. And that's the thing, that the things that you do on your private property, as private as you might imagine them, they don't stay restricted to your private property. They have impacts on the whole society, either materials running into the groundwater or the air or impacting the climate as a whole or the ecosystem, specific animal groups. Um, All of those things matter for society at large. Um, And I think that's pretty intuitive to most people. Um, that you can't just put whatever you want in the groundwater or release whatever you want in the air. I mean, that's why there are laws regulating what companies can do to that effect, not to mention private individuals. Um, but then, you know, I think that opens the question of, well, what about the other things companies do that affect the whole society? What about the way that they store up wealth for a few individuals or don't? What about the wages they pay or don't? Um, again, that's just the management of their property, but it affects the whole society. Um, Elizabeth, what do you think about the way that um, Pope Francis has addressed some of these questions, for instance, maybe in Laudato Si or in other documents? I know that's a really broad topic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Pope Francis, I think, has added quite a bit, especially in the way we think about um, the environment. And and I think that that's a a very welcome addition. Um, You know, I know it's, it's, again, a a sort of polarizing issue. um, But, you know, regardless of what you think about whether the climate is actively changing, whether it's changing as a result of human activity, it's still the case that whether we would be changing it or not, we would still want to be extremely good stewards of the environment um, and cultivate the earth for its betterment, um, just based on what God created humans to do. And I think Pope Francis has been excellent at, at highlighting that. I think something that people miss, too, and maybe you guys can you know, both chastise me on air if I'm wrong. What I like about Laudato Si is uh, um, he, he kind of pokes both bears on this one. Um, m- my favorite thing that always happens is people are talking about Laudato Si with the air conditioner on, which seems to be a no-no, but hey, I like my air conditioning. I'm overweight too. He, he pokes both bears, though, because on one hand he says we have to think about land, the environment, the world as ordered towards something greater but then we also have to start thinking that we don't have dominance over it as well. There's a there's another uh, idea that courses through people's mind that like, well, we can fix all this if we just yeah. start tomorrow. And I, I think that that's the problem undergirding both is that when we think of ourselves in the natural order, we go like, yeah, we're us and that we dominate the world and it's a matter of how we should use it better or worse. What has to start to be different is to say we belong to places like the we the places aren't like fashioned by us we belong to a place i've been accused of thinking that where you're from matters too much because i like to bring up oklahoma all the time uh but maybe i'm overcompensating because i think people have lost that love of place um it's really easy for me to say i've moved quite a few times anyone in academia has to move quite a few times but liz do you think that that undergirds a lot of the the different the, the 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 conversations we're having now is people have lost any sort of sense of saying i belong blank i belong here i belong with these people sure i mean people are have the expectation these days that they might be displaced um you know especially people who are doing the a lot of the writing and sort of you know production of intelligentsia mm-hmm. um those people kind of have an expectation that they won't stay where they're born because they go off to college and they go where the work is. 
um, and, and pretty frequently um, people who are just doing sort of um, ordinary blue-collar work also are subject to displacement. And part of the way our culture tells us to think about that is, well, you know, you go where the work is, you go where the money is, it doesn't matter, you can make a home anywhere, home is where the heart is. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I think that there is a very good argument for place mattering and for um, place mattering, like you say, not only to individuals and their spiritual growth, but, but for the management and good ordering of communities. Um, if people aren't committed to in a deep and serious way to bettering and maintaining the places that they live, um, then those places can pretty quickly get neglected. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on and talking with us uh, this whole time about a wide smattering of things. Like I said, um, you you write uh, one of the articles we didn't even get into that I think people should go check out. Was it for the Nation that you wrote about uh, Martin Luther and the ramifications that that has that had for yeah. wider society? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. So. You write uh, not only about Augustine, you write about things that span thousands of years. Uh, you know, so you're, you, the expertise that you show and in, in what you write, I, I think people would always benefit from this. So if there's a few places that they could maybe go to find your writing consistently, where would you send people to? Um, oh, I tweet it all out. Um, <laughs> so if you're on Twitter, I'm uh, at E. Brunig on Twitter. Um, and... Um, Otherwise, I, I do book reviews pretty frequently for The Nation. I really enjoy doing that. Um, I'm writing on the early church and wealth um, for The Point magazine right now um, and doing some stuff for Virginia Quarterly Review. So just kind of be on the lookout. Um, and, and, of course, I'll always be in America magazine. So you can always find me at America. Well, thank you for coming on our show. Like I said, I am very glad that you're feeling a lot better than you were last time. Uh, and yes. I'm also glad that you were willing to to uh, refigure out a time to come on. It's been very helpful, and I hope people who get a chance to listen to the show really listen in, into the spirit of what you're talking about, that there's a more basic way that we can begin to have these arguments that don't have all of the baggage that we've been dealing with. So I appreciate it very much. Elizabeth Bruning, like we said, editor at Washington Post, frequent writer at America Magazine and many other t uh, places as well. Thanks for coming on the show, Liz. Thanks so much for having me. Well, bud, uh, you know, the, the only thing that I have going for me is uh, I, as an Oklahoman, I don't know if I'll ever own property. <laughs> there you go. So you can maybe avoid some of these difficult moral questions just by virtue of the direction of your life. No, there was, there was a point near the end that really stood out to me, and I think Elizabeth was modeling it. And that's this idea that, you know, when we read, whether it's the popes or the early church writers, like there's a certain charity in not trying to use their text to fit like our pet causes, it's it's a it's a solid gift that we kind of receive. In a lot of cases, we're meant to conform or change in relation to that. And it's similar to what the Holy Father says about um, our relationship to the land. That he you know he criticizes this technocratic paradigm, and that's really a fancy word for uh, like you were kind of pointing out. Like sometimes we can conceive of the natural resources as infinitely malleable and we can kind of like shape them according to our desires and then when things go wrong then we'll just use technology to fix it but really things like the gift of the tradition and the land the, the place where we've been put there's a solidity of those things and part of uh, living justly in the world is learning to live in harmony not like in sentimental terms but really seeking like a peace and harmony 
in the place that we've been that God's God's placed us. Yeah, to use uh, to to dork out real quick. No one has to know how to spell his name. And yes, <laughs> he he came up with many other bad ideas. Um, but Martin Heidegger has this term called the standing reserve, and he was talking about nature with this. And what he said was, in the modern world, what we've done is we look at nature and think of it as a standing reserve. So it's just this, like it's a gas tank uh, full of resources. Like resources is just this tank, and we can use it until it dwindles down and it's empty. But all it really is is this sort of inert thing that we use. My argument is we do the same with tradition. So Catholics will do this. We'll act like the tradition is just this like inert uh, tank full of stuff, and we'll go to it and we'll use it when it's useful for us. But notice in all of those paradigms, it's us using those things. All I want to say, the the big push that I want to make in our show, is that I think it's completely switched around. In many ways, if we go and we look at nature, and of course we can get into like nature as a sort of philosophical concept all its own. Why do we call the created world nature instead of creation, for instance? Mm -hmm. But if we look at creation... We go, how do we fit into it? That's a much b- different question. And it doesn't have to be environmentalist. It doesn't have to be any of the isms. We can just ask, as Christians, how do we fit in this larger uh, story and this larger reality? Not a thing to be used that's inert without its own ends, but it's something that we truly belong to. I think the same happens with tradition. And this is the challenge I have every show, folks, is that you start to say not, okay, I have an idea. How do I go find someone who backs me up? But how do we get challenged daily by what the tradition and the scriptures say? You know, if if you're reading St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or whomever, and I love those two, I, so formative in my life, but if you're not occasionally reading them and stopping and going, oh, wow, Thomas has me in the crosshairs, Augustine has me pegged, I'm wrong in this way, then we're just trying to use the tradition instead of be formed by it. Yeah, so if you're um, excited about these conversations that we've been having and you want to join in this ongoing conversation about the Catholic tradition and help to, you know, spread the word of the good news of Jesus Christ here in Central Iowa, we'd love to have you join us in this endeavor through your financial support, through your prayers, through your encouragement. And so as Mother Angelica used to always say, please do remember us in between. Which bills was it? The electric and gas. All of them. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think the electric and gas. And your pumpkin spice latte. That's your per- pumpkin. Yeah, shout out to John Leonetti. Um, and I, look, guys, I hope that this conversation makes sense of our like the common ploy that I throw out there. I said ploy. I'm, I'm showing my cards. My plea um, is that you guys truly can um, be a part of this. You know, Bud and I are just the, well, not the pretty faces, but the beautiful voices. Um, uh, you know, we're just the people silly enough to decide we should talk into microphones. But really, this is a community endeavor. And un- unlike what might be, some people try to argue that what we're saying is that money matters less. What we're actually trying to say is that financial resources under this understanding, under this Christian understanding, matters more. Because it's not just a matter of you saying, I have a preference for Iowa Catholic Radio, like you have a preference for the country station. Don't name another one. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Um, That you're just choosing what you prefer. No, we're saying that you make a difference, and when you contribute to us, you contribute to this mission. Yeah. And... Again, if you want to think that those are just hollow words coming from us, I can't convince you otherwise. But to me, this beautifully shows, using St. Augustine, you really are a part of this. In some ways, you're more of it 
than the people who are actually on the radio. Well, it's a small thing, Bo, but we on the show, we pray for that Christ would reign in our hearts and in our city. And, you know, uh, about a week ago, we were in the um, State Fair Parade, and it's probably the one chance I'll ever have to be in a parade. But I was I was moved that evening because there were seven or eight goofballs, you know, among us who were out in the streets wearing shirts that had an image of our Lord and said, encounter Jesus. And I think of all the people of Des Moines that were along the parade route who had a chance, you know, Kim Lehman out was out there like giving high fives and, yeah. you know, like offering prayers and blessings to the people along the way. Still makes me laugh that we, the people behind us were a haunted house all dressed like <laughs> demons. It was it was the spiritual life in miniature. It was pretty great. Well, uh, so yeah, um, you can contribute um, by joining us with your financial resources. You can join us with our prayer, with your prayers. So we have uh, the rosary multiple times every day. If you want to hear the Bible read throughout the year, that's 5 a.m. So many local shows, so many great national programming. If you can't contribute financially, you can contribute with your prayers. This is what we're doing together, folks. Thank you for being a part of it. And uh, like I said, we really do see this as a communal endeavor. Well, this has been The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, in our families, in our city, in our state, in the entire nation, the entire world. We appreciate you listening. We can't wait until we can hear, uh, see you back next week. God bless everyone. Common Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard Wednesdays at 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. on Iowa Catholic Radio and on the official Iowa Catholic Radio app.